Mastermind Agent is proud to present the Interview of the Month Club. Top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's rising agent is John Morley with the Morley Real Estate Group in Huntsville, Alabama. He's been an agent for six years. Last year, John closed 69 transactions with a total sales volume of $13.9 million. His average sales price was $202,000. 39% were buyers and 61% were sellers. He operates a team with five members, one listing and closing manager, two buyer agents, one listing partner, and one team leader. John Morley is the owner and team leader of the Morley Real Estate Group. John believes in modeling the best business practices of successful agents. He recognizes that reinventing the wheel takes too long and can be deadly in business. John generates the majority of his business from inexpensive radio and television advertisements. He keeps the cost down by starring in his own ads. It's working. He's averaging 25 to 30 listing appointments per month, and he's on track to close 100 transactions this year. John believes in working on his business rather than in his business. While John focuses on generating leads and moving the team forward, his dedicated team members handle the day-to-day operations. John has not worked directly with a seller or buyer for over a year and a half. He accomplished this by hiring both buyer agents and a listing partner. Listen closely to how the listing partner freed John from a 100-hour-per-week trap, gave him his life back, and continues to grow the business at the same time. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, John. Thank you, Mike. Pleasure to be here. The first thing I'd like to do is go back before you entered the real estate business and just chat about that for a second. What did you do before you became a real estate agent? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, Well, I went to college and studied computer engineering, software engineering. Uh, I thought that's what I wanted to do with my life. So I moved to Huntsville in 2002 and went to work for the U.S. Army as a software engineer. And in about two weeks, I figured out that was... (laughs) not what I was supposed to be doing. Uh, so I stuck that out for a whopping six months. Uh, and then I went and sold copiers, office equipment, for close to two years. And then I got into real estate, and for about a year and a half, I just kind of played around with, with really anything and everything you could do in real estate. I did worked with a home builder, did commercial development, buying and selling houses, and a little bit of um, residential real estate, which is what I'm doing now. Uh, and then in March of 2006, that's when I figured out you know, this, this residential real estate thing is where I see, you know, just a ton of potential and it's what I enjoy the most. So that's when I went full-time into it in um, March of 2006. So why did you choose real estate? Why did, why did you go that direction? You, you had a little crossroads there. You were an engineer and somehow you went to real estate. How did that happen? Well, uh, 
You know, I, I didn't know where I wanted to end up when I, I left that engineering job, but I knew that I like sales and business and marketing. Um, and, and I heard from a few different sources, including a, a close friend that said, you know, selling copiers is, is about the quickest way that you can learn how to sell. So I started doing that and, you know, I was making 50, 60 cold calls a day, knocking on doors, just getting doors slammed in my face. It was awful, but I learned a lot. Um, but when I took that job, I knew that I never wanted to stay there. Uh, I guess, you know, just during the time I was there, just real estate became more and more interesting to me. And then finally, you know, I just jumped ship and I went to work on-site sales for a home builder. And again, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in real estate, but I figured I'd just, just get licensed and get started and, and go from there. When you jumped into the business, do you think you had a fast start or a slow start? Um, well, for the first year and a half when I was still figuring out what to do, you know, it was slow because I was trying to do everything you could do. March of 2006, um, we actually had a, a pretty, I would call it a pretty rapid uh, rise there. You know, the first year in 2006, I think I did maybe 23 transactions. And then 2007, we bumped it up to um, 50 or 60. I can't remember. Um, but, but we had, you know, pretty solid growth um, and it happened pretty quickly. Uh, 2007, our market started, that was the peak of our market. Um, in Huntsville, Alabama, we were about a year to two years behind the rest of the country in terms of when our market shifted. So I was in a good market for about a year, and then I've been in a declining market that's gotten worse and worse ever since. Well, worse and worse meaning uh, better and better for buyers, not so good for sellers. And since we're sellers-based, um, you know, it's definitely a challenge, but we're still in business and we're still kicking and we're still growing actually. So we're pretty happy about the market. Let's do that right now. Let's jump in and talk about the market there in Huntsville. Go further, describe your current market. What type of market is it? Well, we are, uh, we, we have an army base here called Redstone Arsenal, um, which is much more civilian employees than military. So we're not really a military town, but what we do have is a lot of defense dollars. So more defense dollars are spent in Huntsville than anywhere else in the country other than Washington, D.C. So we've got a lot of contractors and a lot of high-paying jobs here. And because of that government money, it's, it's helped um, stabilize the market through this whole thing. Like our prices have only come down 5% from the peak, which is um, you know pretty amazing when you compare that to places like Las Vegas that are still down 60%. Um, but we are, you know, right now, you know, it, it, in, in what I would consider a pretty heavy buyer's market. And we've been here for the past, really the past three years, um, by pretty heavy, I consider over a year's worth of inventory. So right now we're sitting at about 14 months of inventory. So for every 14 sellers you have out there, only one buyer is coming along every month. Do you know what the population is in Huntsville? Um, it is, new census just came out. I think it's uh, up to 400,000 now for our metro area. Do you have a niche or do you specialize in anything in the market? Well, the majority of our business comes from radio and television advertising. And so, you know, if you look at our the, the listings that we take and sell, it's really representative of our entire market. Like our price point is almost identical to what the market is. Our distribution of where we take listings is, is pretty identical. So uh, I would say if, if the only real specialization we have is that we want motivated sellers. And so our advertising is directly going after the people that want um, a good agent. You know, somebody, some, a seller that's shopping for a real estate agent 
that wants a real performer and somebody that's going to get the job done, that's who we're going after. So the people that are moving locally and in this market, they're, they're so difficult to deal with. Sometimes it works, but in this market, what we want is motivated sellers. Let's talk about your lead generation. You talked about radio and television ads. Let's break that out. Let's talk about your radio advertising first. Why did you pick radio advertising? Well, uh, you know, when I, that first year in 2006, the, um, one of the reasons I actually ended up choosing to be a residential realtor is because I got a hold of these interviews, much like you're doing now, where I was listening to top agents around the country kind of just spilling their guts as far as, you know, what's working, what's not working, and it's not some theoretical stuff that, that, that a teacher is coming up with. It's, it's literally those people saying, yeah, this is what's making me money in my business right now, and this is what's not working. So, you know, on those interviews, I, the, the, the light just kind of came on because I was seeing people that, you know, I mean, I'm thinking to myself, they're not any smarter than me. I mean, if they can do it, I can do it. And there were a few agents on there uh, in those interviews that I really connected with in terms of my business philosophy and my marketing philosophy, and one of them was Russell Shaw. And Russell is a good friend of mine now, and he's a mentor, and um, he built his entire business on radio and television advertising. So I basically just took his ad uh, and modified it for our market, and we're still running basically the same ads. You modeled your advertisement off of Russell Shaw. How did you produce these ads? Did you have to go into the studio and put them together? Yeah, so the, the radio ad is, is a pretty easy deal. Uh, you know, ours doesn't have music or anything like that. It's just me talking. So I go into the studio every three or four months and, and uh, redo a new ad. It takes about a half hour. TV is a little bit of a bigger deal. I've got a friend who's very good at video production. Um, and we actually shoot in my house. Um, can't tell. You know, we put a white sheet up. It looks like I'm in a studio. We end up reshooting that maybe twice a year. And you can see my radio and TV ads right now uh, on my website at morethegroup.com. We always have the most current radio ad and TV ad posted. Those are playing on your website. So if our listeners wanted to see that or hear it, they could go onto your website. Yep. Now, you said you, you produce these yourself. Is it your voice? Are you, are you the person in the ads? Yes, I am. What do you think that your production cost is? Uh, well, for radio, um, produ- I mean, the production cost on really, it, you're, you shouldn't have a production cost. Um, with radio, you know, I'm just paying for the studio time. For TV, uh, the guy that's shooting my ads, he's also my media rep, so he gets paid uh, basically by the TV stations. And that's, that's pretty normal for, um, for that setup, for that arrangement. So you're not paying for the production. Uh, but they're taking a percentage of um, what you're paying the station, and that's normal. So your production cost is covered. There's no real production cost to put these ads together. That's correct. But there's a huge, huge, huge cost of running the ads. And, uh, you know, radio is a little bit cheaper. Um, The beauty of radio is that you can find out if an ad is working within about two weeks. I'll never forget, we started running our first radio ad in, I think it was February, maybe March of 2007. And within two weeks, I mean, we we're just booking appointments left and right. And it hasn't really gotten better. It's not like over time we have all these more, uh, or excuse me, so many more calls coming in from radios. Like as soon as it was running, it worked. It just worked. Um, TV is a lot different. TV takes, uh, in my experience and Russell's experience, about a year for it to actually start working. So 
radio, you can test different messages and different ads and figure out if, if you're working or not. TV is a very uh, risky thing to do um, because it takes so long to figure out. So, you know, to take away that risk, I just made the decision, I'm not going to try to be creative. Uh, I'm not going to try to be so smart and come up with my own ads. I'm just going to go find another ad that's already working and use that one. And did that work? Yeah, absolutely. They work fantastic. So you just copied an ad that you had seen before that seemed to be working for someone else. Exactly. Yep. And, and you know, that's against my nature. My nature is, uh, you know, with a big ego and, you know, I'm a perfectionist and, and I want anything that I've, that, that's got my name on it. I want to be able to say, you know, I made that, that's mine. But the truth is in business and real estate, that is just such a risky and stupid thing to do because you're just you don't know if it's going to work or not. There's no way to know if, if a certain marketing piece is going to work or not until you test it. So why in the world would I want to go spend all of my money right now testing a new ad when thousands of agents around the country are already running ads that are working? So why not just use theirs? Did you ask Russell if you could copy his ad? Yeah. Originally, I asked Russell if I could um, copy his ad, and he said, yeah, have at it. Use anything you want. He, he's trademarked the no-hassle listing, so that phrase, you know, he can't give anybody permission to use. Did you think of a similar jingle to use? Well, uh, certainly no jingle. I mean, that's the quickest way to make an ad not work. Um, <laughs> I mean, really. Uh, no, we just kind of developed our own look and feel um, and went from there. Where do these ads air? How did you pick the radio station that you were going to put them on? Well, again, you know, I could, okay, so let's say I copied, you know, an ad that was working successfully in another market, but I ran it on a station that totally doesn't fit the demographic that I want or that's going to respond to the ad, then the ad's totally going to fail. So the, the ads that we're running right now really only work on news talk type stations. So we run... Um, uh, you know, our ad on one talk radio station here, I'd be on the second one, but the, the ratings changed and, you know, it just, it didn't make sense financially anymore. But the one news talk station here has, has been fantastic for us. And then we're on uh, cable news networks and we're on um, local news also in the morning and, and, and at night. Very good. So the type of station that you're putting it on is talk, talk radio or news television. And you've discovered that that results in the highest response rate? Well, yes. For, for the type of ad that this is, uh, that's correct. So, you know, entertainment-based radio, um, the ads that we run just don't work on entertainment-based radio. I don't know why, but they just don't. And I don't question it. I'm not going to try to make it work if I know that it already doesn't work. Um, there are different ad, you know, formulas and formats that people are using that do work on entertainment-based radio. So you just got to know you know, who the demographic is that you're going after and who you're speaking to and, and make sure the message matches your audience. How long are these ads? Are they a 30-second spot or a minute spot? How, how long do they run? Yeah, the, the radio ad is uh, 60 seconds, and that's, you know, about normal for radio. And then our TV ad is, uh, is 30 seconds, uh, and that's about normal for TV. I wish it were 60 seconds. I feel like the one of the reasons the radio ad... Uh, works so quickly compared to TV taking longer is because I get a longer time 
to educate the sellers on why they need to call us. Um, but I, I've just never, I've never been able to convince myself that I need to pay twice as much to run, you know, the same number of spots. So we're, we're just, we've stuck with the 30 second format. How often do you run these ads? What kind of frequency are you putting it out there? On radio, um, on the one station we're on maybe three or four times a day, uh, three during the, the peak uh, hours, and then we get some bonus spots that run at various times. Then on TV, uh, on each station, maybe, well, it depends on the station. One station we're on three times a week, one we're on four times a week, uh, on one week and five on the other, and that alternates back and forth. And then I think the other one is the same. You mentioned on radio you try to put that out during peak hours. What what are the peak hours? Well, uh, on talk radio, really all day. Um, you know, drive time in the morning, drive time at night, and and during the work hours. Um, we actually, you know, just put one spot in for each talk radio show during the day. So we've got one runs from six to ten. I think one from eleven to two, one from two to five. And then if we get, you know, bonus spots, they'll usually run just somewhere in there. So you're trying to spread them out throughout the day, or was it just you told the station whenever you have an opening, roll it? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I would assume that, you know, some of these shows have loyal followings, and so I want to make sure I'm hitting that audience. So they might just be tuning in for that program and not be listening to that station the rest of the day. In these advertisements... What are you telling the buyer or seller to do? What are you directing them to do? Are you asking them to call you or go online or what kind of action do you want them to take? Yeah, either call us or go to our website. So both the radio and TV ad have both calls to action. Say for free information packet, call our phone number or uh, visit our website. And are they calling directly into your office or is it going to some type of automated phone line? Uh, No, it's coming directly in. Do you know when the ads are going to go out so you you have the phones manned? No. And the truth is, you know, when we get calls, it's not because somebody's just heard the ad for the very first time at 333, and so they call us at 334. I mean, typically it's people that have been hearing the ads for years. So, you know, when they call us, it's, it's not, it won't necessarily be right when the ad runs, if that makes sense. How many leads do you get on each of these mediums, uh, either per week or per month? Well, for us, a lead is basically an appointment, and we're booking about 25 to 30 appointments a month right now, and basically they're all coming from radio and TV. And, you know, now it's kind of hard to track because we get a lot of, well, my my coworker told told me about you. Well, who's who's your coworker? John Smith. We don't know who John Smith is, and so our only assumption can be they must have heard a radio ad or TV ad. So it's it's frustrating for me because I would love to be able to know exactly where every single piece of business I get comes from so I can appropriate my marketing dollars smarter. Uh, but the truth is it's, it's, it's getting really hard to figure out exactly where each lead to, you know, what the, the actual lead source is on, on each lead coming in. We always ask, but you know, a lot of times people just don't know. What do you think the key to success is in these ads? In order for an ad to work, you have to be speaking to the hot buttons that are in the minds of sellers in that market at that time. So what I mean by that is, you know, when we started running the ad in 2007, um, our market was still pretty good. You know, sellers 
were used to an appreciating market. They valued realtors less than they do now. Um, what we were advertising then was basically, you know, our no stress listing, which is cancel any time. If you find the, the buyer yourself, you don't owe us anything. Um, flexible commission structure. You know, basically a very seller-friendly program. That's what made people call. That worked until, uh, you know, the market uh, started going down. And, and now, today, sellers don't really care that much how much they pay in commission. Uh, they don't really care, care about a seller-friendly program. They just want to know, can you sell my house or not? You know, do I even have hope? So our ads today, since we're in a, a, a down market right now, I mean, they, they very directly speak to the market that we're in. So, um, you know, we're admitting we're in a down economy, we're in a down market, but we're still successful. We're still selling houses. Um, all of our ads always mention our days on market compared to the market average, so we're showing performance. Um, you know, basically just giving uh, data and valid reasons as to why we're outperforming the market instead of filling it up with platitudes like, I'm the number one agent, I've been in business for 20 years, blah, blah, blah. People just, you know, their their eyes glaze over when they hear that stuff. The things you're mentioning now in your down market are your days on market comparison. Any other items that you're trying to emphasize during those ads in this down market? Yeah, I mean, something that we've we've really implemented, I guess, the last six months, nine months is is make sure you're making a good decision when you hire an agent because the risk is enormous. Um, basically saying something along the lines of hiring the wrong agent will cost you thousands of dollars and waste months of your time um, because we're, we're in that type of environment where if you go on the market with the wrong agent or the wrong price or the wrong marketing strategy, you're going to lose a bunch of money. So we're, we're trying to make people very aware of that upfront before they hire an agent. Because a lot of times, Mike, we're getting hired after they've already, you know, hired another agent, and they've realized, oh, this is more serious than we thought. We 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 need to hire a professional now. So we're trying to to, to educate people up front that they need to hire a professional from the beginning. And that's actually it, it seems to have worked. Our calls have picked up a good bit since we've started doing that. But anything I'm saying, by the time somebody's reading this, could be totally different. Because you know, all that matters is is doesn't matter what I'm saying. All that matters is is it resonating with what's going on in the minds of sellers at the time I'm saying it? So you want to match your market. Exactly. And you said you revise your ads every quarter, like every three uh, months or so? Yeah. I mean, the rule of, of ads is, is never touch an ad that's working. Um, and so sometimes we'll change it because it just stopped working and I can tell, okay, there was the drop-off. We need to change something just to get it back up. So we'll change it just to you know refresh a couple of the words um, to update the, the days on market, and then if the if the market has changed, or let me put it this way, if the seller's perception of the market has changed, then yeah, we're you know we're changing the, the message of the ad. Now tell me again, how long have you been running radio ads? Let's see, it's um, June of 2011 right now. We started radio in uh, February March of 2007. Eight, nine, ten, eleven. So, is that four years, and then TV for three years. So you started with radio first. That's correct. You mentioned that it's pretty inexpensive to get these uh, ads put together, but it costs some money as you go. How much money does it cost to advertise on the radio? You know, it's going to be different in every market. Um, the cost to, like in Phoenix, Arizona, where you've got four million people. <laughs> 
you know, a market that's 10 times the size of, of mine, the cost to run an ad is going to be dramatically different than what it is here. However, the number of people hearing it is going to be dramatically different too. You know, I mean, when you're testing ads, you want to go in as low risk as possible. You don't want to spend thousands and thousands of dollars a month on something that's not proven yet. Um, but you do have to run it enough to make sure that, that you're you're getting it, you know, enough of a, a test set there. Um, for me, you know, my threshold is about $1,000. I'm willing to pay $1,000 to get a closed sale. You know, our average commission is $6,000. So I'm willing to pay about 1000 to get 6000 If I don't see that kind of return on investment on the money I'm putting towards a station, you know, I'll just end it. For your $1,000, how many spots does that get you? It, it, it is just different on every station and, and different based on what time of day I'm running it. I'll give you an example of, of uh, how much we're spending. Um, we're, we're spending about 2000 on radio right now and about 2500 on TV uh, every month. So you're spending about $2,000 a month on radio and $2,500 a month on TV, and that is generating somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 30 listing appointments a month? Correct. Well, tw- I mean, we're, we're getting a total of 25 to 30 listing appointments per month. That's right. Um, as far as are they all coming in from radio and TV? No. I mean, some are, are coming from past clients and sphere, but truth is we don't really spend any money marketing to sellers other than radio and TV. So I attribute that, you know, basically all of that to radio and TV. That's what we built our business to start with. What else do you think the listeners ought to know if that we haven't covered about radio and TV advertising? Well, I'd say if you're going to do it, just, just don't come up with your own clever ad. Uh, just find somebody in another market that's got an ad that's working uh, and that you agree with. Like there's some, there's some, TV ads out there, radio ads out there from other realtors. I've heard that I just couldn't say the stuff they're saying. I just wouldn't be comfortable with it. It doesn't fit my personality or my business philosophy. So the ad has to, to be something that you could get behind and stand behind. But, uh, you know, find an ad that's already working. Don't don't risk all your money and, and time by trying to come up with your own ad. Are you advertising on the Internet? Yeah, we spend uh, a good bit of money on, online to attract buyer leads. So. Um, Basically, you know, we just subscribe to a few different services that we pay either a set monthly fee and we get, you know, all the leads coming in or we pay per lead. How's the quality of the leads that you're getting? Well, lead is uh, leads a, a loose term that, you know, people argue back and forth about what lead actually means. Uh, when I said lead right then, all I mean is, you know, could be just somebody filling out a form to view MLS listings. But uh, what we found is that, I mean, they're they're good. I mean, yeah, 30% of them are going to be, you know, Donald Duck at AOL.com and just, you know, false phone numbers. But, you know, 70% of the leads are going to be real information. And if you follow up with these people, like, really, really quick, like in the first five, ten minutes, I mean, it's it's amazing how many of them convert. So we actually get the majority of our buyer business from uh, the Internet, from these, you know, what what a lot of people would call unqualified weak leads. You're making a quick response. How are you able to do that? How is that information getting to you? Is it, is it being emailed to you? Is it sent to your phone? How do you make a quick turnaround on that response? Well, I wish it could be quicker. Um, you know, so here, here's how it works. Uh, all these different sites, whenever, any, whenever a lead is generated, 
um, it gets forwarded to an email address I have set up. It's basically just a forwarding email address. So it, a copy of it gets put in my account, but I never even see it. Uh, it gets forwarded on to my two buyer's agents. Uh, and whoever, whoever has Internet leads that week, uh, it's their responsibility to call that person as soon as possible. So you know, if they happen to be sitting at their computer making calls, that lead comes in, you know, that's easy. They can call them immediately. If they're out showing property or meeting with a client, that's when we're in a situation where half hour or hour or two hours could go by and we haven't followed up with that lead. You know, in the past I've tried uh, a lead coordinator, um, so somebody that is just assigned to follow up with every single lead that comes in. I think we may go back to that in the future. It just it, it didn't really work with us. We, we, we used a virtual assistant to do it. Uh, she wasn't very sales-oriented. Uh, I think it can work, uh, but again, it just didn't for us. On your lead generation, you mentioned that you are getting referrals from past clients and your sphere. How are you promoting that? Are, are you marketing to those people, and if so, how? Well, uh, I mean, the biggest lead generation project I have in my plate right now is restarting that because I've been awful about it for the past you know, three, four years, well, I guess three years haven't really been doing anything. You know, the very first thing I did when I started in the business in March 2006 was put my database together and mail to every single person I knew and who knew me and who we liked each other. Uh, you know, like the first, I did uh, one letter a week for eight weeks, handwritten note, stayed in contact with them a lot, sent them letters out a good bit. Um, and then I just kind of stopped because I got so busy and you know, I just lost my way, I guess. Uh, still, we're getting about, right now today, 30% of our business is coming from past clients, from referrals, uh, and then from my sphere of influence. So, you know, three out of our 10 sales, which last year would have been um, 70 divided by 30%, whatever that is, you know, 25 sales, 20 sales, um, from our, our sphere and past clients and referrals we're doing basically nothing. Like literally all I'm doing right now is sending a monthly real estate market update once a month. Uh, so I'm very, very excited about that because I just see an enormous opportunity there and, and a, a ton of potential that I'm, I'm not tapping into right now. Um, I mean, everybody that's listening should be marketing to the database, you know, at least two, three times a month. And everybody knows that. <laughs> but you just get you just get busy and you get going and you, think, and you just let things slide. And that's unfortunately where I am today. You generate these leads. The leads come in. What do you do to capture those leads and to start tracking those leads? As far as, you know, our process when a seller lead comes in. And again, usually when somebody's calling us and we're identifying, I mean, if somebody's calling us and we're marking it as a seller lead, almost always they're calling to book an appointment. I mean, sometimes they're calling for, you know, to have a question answered or to have the information packet sent. But, I mean, with Internet today, you know, they hear your radio ad or, or TV ad and they're going online. And so by the time they're calling us, they've, they've, they've basically decided that, yeah, we want to meet. So when they call in, um, the person that I like to handle those, uh, all the in incoming seller leads, if she can, is uh, Jessica, my listings and closings manager. Um, she's an administrative person. She runs our office and she's just very, very good at getting the data out of the seller that we need to get. And she can ask questions like, you know, what do you think your home is worth? Um, and, and ask more personal questions. And, and the person calling in feels more comfortable talking to her because she's not the agent. So she's almost like a third party asking questions. 
Um, once she gets all the info, then she uh, books an appointment with Lord Duncan, my listing partner. So our initial appointment is going to be out at their house with my listing partner. Uh, and as far as tracking, um, every single incoming seller lead and buyer lead gets put on an um, intake sheet. And then all those intake sheets, they get the, the information from those gets put into the database and it gets put onto a spreadsheet basically that we use to track the lead source for, me, for every lead. So I've got a, a lead source tracking sheet, spreadsheet that shows me um, for both buyer leads, buyer closings, seller leads and seller closings, what the lead source was on each one of those. And if a buyer lead comes in, how do you capture the buyer lead? Well, that's a lot more difficult. Um, you know, so we're only getting 30 to 35, 40 seller leads a month. It's pretty easy to manage. When you've got hundreds of, of internet leads coming in a month on the buyer side, it's difficult to track. And, um, you know, we, we basically keep almost everything paper-based on the buyer lead management side. I just, I've not found a, a CRM program that I'm happy with that can really manage our leads well. So, you know, we've, we've, we classify each buyer lead as, as an A, a B, or a C, and they're all, and we use the intake sheet basically, you know, to keep all the notes on. Um, so as far as me tracking, I can, you know, th from email, I can figure out basically all the leads that we get from every different internet lead source or every lead that comes from our 800 number. But for any referral or, you know, sphere or somebody that's called in off a yard sign, I don't even track that. I mean, it's written down on a sheet somewhere, but we don't have a good centralized system to track that. Um, and, and I've tried over and over, but I just, I, until there's a good CRM system out there that, that can really track buyer leads very, very well, um, we're just going to kind of stick with, with how we're doing it right now. So currently the lead comes in off the internet and it gets forwarded to your buyer agents through the email. Automatically, yeah. Automatically. And they take it from there and start running with it. That's correct. So there's no formal follow-up system to those buyers, such as sending them out something through mail or email. It's simply the buyer agent making either an email contact or a phone call back to the buyer. Is that correct? Uh, well, that's the first step. And then, um, basically, well, I mean, what the buyer agent does when they get that lead is they enter them into top producer so that they can be put on our, our weekly buying tip email campaign. So they're getting you know at least one email a week from me with, with a, a tip of the week for home buying. Um, they're generally getting put into the MLS system so they can receive, you know, new listings as they come on the market. And then as far as how does the follow-up work after, you know, if, if the buyer's agent makes the call and is not able to get a hold of them, uh, they'll try up to eight additional times before they leave a voice message. And once they leave a voice message, they just, you know, we, we, we don't follow up with them after that. But, you know, as soon as we've had a conversation, we can figure out, okay, are they A, you know, are they going to buy within the next 30 days? Are they B, are they somewhere between 31 days and 90 days? Or are they C, are they 90 days plus? And based on whether they're an A or B or C is how we'll continue to follow up with them from then on out. But every lead gets put on that drip campaign. One way or the other? Correct, yeah. The, the buyer lead, the buyer tips, excuse me. Do you have different campaigns? They're an A, a B, or a C? Um, well, the, the drip email campaign, no. Um, as far as how we follow up with them, though, yes. It, so if they're an A, our next step, it, so if, if, if a buyer's agent is working with a lead that they've classified as an A and they don't have an appointment set, their next step is to get an appointment set. 
So with an A, it's, it's a daily thing. They're always uh, looking to get the next appointment. With a B, somebody who says they're going to you know, buy a house between 30 and 90 days, we follow up with them twice a month. And then with a C, it's once a month. Let's move into talking about sellers. How many listings do you currently have? Uh, we currently have, I just looked at it this morning, 25, and eight of those are under contract with a buyer. What's your number one source of seller or buyer business? Uh, definitely radio and TV. Sellers have a lot of options out there in the market today. Why would a seller choose you? What's your competitive advantage or your benefit? Um, we've got a lot. When you ask that question, you're talking about what's going to make them call us or what is the, the real underlying benefit? Why would they hire you? If you, if you go out on a listing appointment and they're com- you're competing with three other agents on that listing appointment, why would the seller hire you? Well, the, you know, the, the one thing that we, we try to refocus all objections and, and everything they ask, all their concerns and questions back towards is track record. So, you know, let's say we're interviewing with two other agents and, and these other agents are saying, oh, we do this and this and this. As far as advertising, we'll, you know, hold an open house every week and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And that's why I'm such a good realtor and you should hire me. And we say that's great that they do all that stuff. But at the end of the day, all that matters is who's got the track record that shows, they're, you know, who is selling homes for the most amount of money and in the least amount of time. And the numbers don't lie, so we, we try to focus everything back towards that. You know, you're not hiring a realtor because you want a friend. I mean, you're, you're hiring a realtor because you want your household. And if you want your household, you also want it sold for the most amount of money and the least amount of time with the fewest amount of households. So, you know, when we can show on paper, this is how we compare to this other agent. Uh, this is how we've done in the past. This is how, you know, he's done in the past. Um it's a pretty easy decision. So you're able to show a direct comparison between yourself and the other agent there at the listing presentation? Yeah, just numbers out of the MLS. Like days on market. How many? To- so my, I think one of the most telling stats is how many total listings does a listing agent have right now compared to how many of those are under contract with a buyer? So like right now, you know, 32% of our sellers right now are successful. They're just waiting to close. We've already got a buyer. They're under contract. We're just waiting to close. Uh, the competitor I go up against most, 6% of their listings, on average, even this morning, 6% uh, are under contract at any given time. So, so out of for every 100 sellers they have, only six are currently successful. Now, do you want to be listed with, with a realtor who has, you know, a third of their sellers are currently successful or 6%? So that, to me, is a number that's more telling than anything else. Days on market is, you know, also really important. And I think it, it's the, the number that, that sellers understand most, especially ones we've never talked to before. So that's why we always talk about days on market, um, you know, in our ads. Do you ever bring up the sales to list price ratio? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, if you go on our website right now, we, we've got a page called Current Days on Market. And we update it monthly showing uh, our days on market compared to the market average and then our sales-to-list-price ratio compared to the market average. And so uh, I'll pull it up right now. So like right now, you know, our average is 54 days. Average agent is 105. Our average sales-to-list-price ratio is 98. The market average is 96.1. So your average agent is taking, you know, 
um, 60 days, excuse me, 50 days longer to sell your house, uh, and they're selling for 1.9% less. That's a lot of money. And then when you can break it down and show specifically against, you know, different agents that you're competing with, it's pretty powerful. So at your listing presentation, you're bringing your computer so you can tap into the MLS and show these statistics. Um, no. Uh, typically, we're just emailing it later once we find out who uh, we're competing against or if we're able to find out who we're competing against ahead of time, we'll, we'll bring it. We, we did not do a, a laptop or iPad presentation or anything. Uh, everything we do at their house is um, on paper. Now, they do come into the office for a pricing appointment, and we do you know that on the computer hooked up to a TV. What is a pricing appointment? Okay, so the process we follow is that, uh, you know, our initial appointment um, takes about an hour to an hour and a half, and it's at the seller's house. Uh, so what happens there is, is a walkthrough. Uh, we're building rapport with the seller and finding out everything we need to know about their house, asking lots of questions, um, and then sitting down with them at the table and really going over... Um, I mean, the first thing we do is educate them on, okay, this is how real estate actually works. Because there's so many myths out there, you know, as far as what causes real estate to sell and where where you need to advertise it and, you know, just a lot of nonsense out there. So the first thing we do is we step them through about seven minutes of basically educating them on real estate and educating them on the market. And most of it is already, hopefully they've already read that in our home seller's guide that we asked them to read before we've gone out. Uh, but we go over all that again. And then we go over marketing and what we do and what we don't do and why. Um, and then after that, um, you know, we ask the question, so, you know, based on what we've gone over today, do you feel like we're the agents that can represent you best in the sale of your home? Um, you know, in and in, we haven't gone over price yet, so the question is usually asked, you know, assuming that we're on the same page as far as price, you know, do you feel like we're a good fit? So if the answer is yes, Feel like we're a good fit, you know. If we're on the same page as far as price, next step is to have them back into the office, uh, usually the next day or maybe two or three days later, um, where it takes about 30 to 45 minutes to go over um, the market conditions, go over pricing on their home. So the way we were doing it, which we stopped last summer because all of a sudden out of nowhere it just totally stopped working, was you know once they said yeah we'll hire you if we're on the same page as far as price. We would go back to our office and we would do our pricing analysis and then we would email it to the seller, which is obviously a bad idea, but it was working for us. Uh, and then we'd call them to go over on the phone. But at that point in the market, you know, remember this was after the home buyer tax credit at the early part of last year. And so sellers all of a sudden thought we were in a good market again, even though we weren't. And so they stopped listening to what we were saying. So we, you know, they'd see this email with all this data, but they just wouldn't believe it. And so, you know, the, the number of listings we were taken dropped off dramatically. So I said, we've got to do something different. And um, what we started doing is what a lot of other agents are doing, which is basically having the seller come into the office and look at every single house that an appraiser would look at to compare, you know, their house for a selling price and look at every single house that, that they're competing against that the buyers are going to look at and really get them to, to, to step themselves into the shoes of the buyer and to look at their house like a buyer would. Um, when it's staring them in the face, it, it's really hard for them to, um, I mean, they can they can try, you know, to, to still stay um, in hope and not in reality. But let's just put it this way. With an email, it's really easy to scroll to the bottom, see that number, and hit delete. 
and never even consider anything else. But when they come into the office, um, we found that it, it's helped tremendously as far as sellers uh, finally moving into reality. Because you're stepping them through the process. Exactly. And, and really forcing them to look at their house like a buyer would, which they don't want to do. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R E A L G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Let's back up a little bit. Let's go back to where the call comes in from a seller who sets the listing appointment. So when, uh, you know, when a seller lead comes in, Jessica, my listings and closings manager, she is uh, almost always taking that incoming call and she goes through the intake sheet with them and then she'll uh, set the appointment with them uh, to meet with Laura Duncan, my listing partner. So while she's got them on the phone, she'll pull up, we use Google Calendar so we can all see each other's calendars. Uh, Google Apps actually uh, looks on Laura's calendar, goes ahead and books the appointment, um, and then after she hangs up, then we send out an email to the sellers uh, with basically an agenda of what they can expect during the appointment, and then also a link to the, the material we want them to read through before we meet. Are there any important questions on that initial qualifying that you're looking for? You know, the first question we ask typically is, how did you hear about us? So we want to know you know, what's working, what's not as far as marketing. Like I mentioned earlier, sometimes it's difficult, but typically we can we can get a good response out of that. Um, some other important questions, what do you think the value of your home is? And actually a question, Jessica's been rephrasing it, what she says is, uh, what do you think your home would appraise for? So we kind of dance around, what do you think it would sell for? We start with appraised value and then kind of move into market value. Um, what's the reason that you're selling? When do you need to sell? Where are you moving to? Are you interviewing any other agents? What, <clears throat> excuse me, what are you looking for in the agent you hire? Um, and that's basically, that's basically it as far as the important questions. Do you ask them about their mortgage balance uh, to see if they're above or below water? Uh, you know, <laughs> we don't, we're not in a market. So, about 10% of the sales in our market right now are foreclosures and 1% are short sales. So, I mean, we do have to turn down a ton of listings because people can't sell, but it's not um, to the point where like nine out of 10 people calling us are upside down. If it were nine out of 10 people calling us were upside down, then you better believe we'd be asking that. And the truth is in that kind of market, every seller would be expecting it. If it if it comes up if it can come up naturally in the conversation, we will ask it and try to find out their loan balance, um, you know, based on and how much they think it would sell for compared to their mortgage balance. Um, but a lot of times people can get offended by that if they think they're in a pretty good market and they've got some sort of privacy issue. Um, but if we if we sniff out um, if we get any sense that it's it's probably not going to work, you know, then, then we really dig in and we're not going to book an appointment with somebody. Um, that, that's if we feel like they're not going to be able to sell, but they're not being open and, and honest about you know what they owe against the house, then we just we won't take that appointment. So I guess it, it, that question would be more case by case. Once you set the appointment, do you send out a pre-listing package? Uh, well, we used to, well, okay. So you know, typically by the time somebody's calling us to 
to um, book an appointment, they've already read our pre-listing packet, read it online. Um, once the appointment's booked, in that agenda email that we send, we do ask them to read through it, uh, and we explain why, and we really sell them on the benefits of reading through. So pretty much almost always, they've read through our pre-listing packet before we meet, which makes things so much easier. And that's posted online, so they're typically already seeing that before they get to you. Yeah, like if you were to go to my website right now in the upper right-hand corner, there's a little starburst graphic that says free seller's info packet, and that's our pre-listing packet. And in order to get that packet, do they have to enter any information? Do they have to put in their name and the email address, or do you just, they push the button and they go straight to it? Uh, no, they do not have to enter anything. And is that your home seller guide? Is that what you were mentioning earlier? Yeah, Uh you know, the, the pre-listing packet, I mean, there's really two pieces to it. One piece is, is the home seller's guide, so explaining what they need to know about selling a home. And the second part is is our no-stress listing program information, so basically telling them about us and about our listing program. So the pre-listing packet is basically a combination of those two. Sometimes in our advertising, we use the word home seller's guide. Sometimes we use free information packet. The word pre-listing packet, uh, you know, that, that's thrown around a lot by realtors, and, and we use it here, but... Uh, truth is, that doesn't mean anything to a seller. You know, information kit, information packet, information package, seller's guide, all those things, you know, they make sense to a seller. So we try to, to stick in the language that they understand. You've mentioned you have a listing partner who's going to go out on these presentations. When does Laura get involved in this process? Here's our typical process. Let's say, Mike, you called in right now and said, thinking about selling your home. Uh, you talk to Jessica, she would step you through the questions and go ahead and book an appointment with Laura for, say, what's today? Today is Wednesday, so say for Friday, 3 o'clock, 3.30. You would meet with Laura out at your house, and assuming that you felt like we were a good fit, you know, as far as price, assuming that, you know, we were on the same page as far as price, you know, you feel like we're a good fit, then you would uh, book a second appointment back at the office, let's say it'd be on Monday. Then you'd meet with Laura back here in the office uh, on Monday in the conference room. We've got a you know, 50-inch TV hooked up to a Mac Mini that we use to go through the MLS information. So by the time that, so when Laura shows up at your doorstep, though, Friday at 3.30, typically she has not talked to you. Um, the, the, the packet that she has with her with all the information and everything that's been prepared for her, so her first contact and first, you know, really even knowing about the file is about five minutes before the appointment. She'll look through the packet and get familiar with your situation and what's going on with you. Then she just runs around all day and meets sellers. Yeah, her role is, you know, to do the initial counseling, excuse me, the initial listing appointments at the houses, to do the pricing appointments back here at the office, to price the properties. Um, and then, you know, once we've taken a listing, once we've taken a listing, she's calling every seller every single week to go over, you know, how's the, how's the house performing in the market, what's going on in the market, what do we need to do to get it sold. And then when an offer comes in, she's negotiating that contract. And then once it becomes a contract, then she turns it over to our listings and closings manager, and she's basically done with that file. We have it set up that she'll make two follow-up calls you know, during the closing period, just basically to touch base. But as soon as there's a contract, basically Jessica is, is in charge of handling that file and getting it through to closing. Who goes to the closing itself? Uh, Jessica, listings and closings manager. So, you know, we found... Um, I mean, there's obviously two ways to do this. One would be to have the closings manager go, which is what we do. And then the second would be to have that original agent. So, you know, on the buyer side, it would be the buyer's agent. Or on the listing side, it would be, you know, my listing partner. 
Um, what we found is that from a customer service standpoint, it would just almost seem weird if we, you know, it, so you were working with Laura, Mike, uh, you know, you successfully negotiate a contract, you know, your house is, is finally sold. Now Jessica calls you, introduces herself, says what her role in the process is, what the next steps are. And then for the next 30 days, y'all probably talk, you know, a few times a week. Um, any problem or issue that comes up, you know, she she's the one that's talking to you and helping you through, and you really, you know, start to build a bond and a rapport with her. So what we found is that at the closing table, it makes sense to continue that relationship as opposed to, you know, inserting Laura, the listing partner, back in the process or one of the buyer's agents back in the process when they haven't really even been touching the file for the last 30 days. So from a customer service standpoint, we've just um, found it's a, it's a better flow. Has there ever been a time where the closings are overlapping or there's too many in a day and the listing and closing manager can't be at all the places at the same time? It, has that happened? Do you have to bring people back in? If she's in town, it happens rarely because, you know, she's the one booking the closings. If it does happen, typically, you know, that the agent is going. Um, I went to one last week because it was a, a dear friend of mine's father. Um, my closings manager is going to be out of town all next week. So when she's out of town, then those agents are going to be going to those closings. What made you decide to hire a listing partner? <laughs> well, I was burnt out. <laughs> I mean, totally. Uh, so, uh, summer of 2000, okay, March of 2009, yeah, just over two years ago, March of 2009, uh, the, the, the company that I was with, which was a Coldwell Banker franchise, they closed their doors, um, and I had to figure out within about a two-week period what I was going to do. Uh, so that was, uh, needless to say, one of the most stressful moments of my life. Um, interviewed with different companies and finally decided that opening up our own company just made the most sense. You know, our company is Morley Real Estate Group. Uh, previously, we were Morley Real Estate Group, the team inside of Coldwell Banker. And so we basically just pulled the team out and moved into our own office. Um, I mean, it's been great. I mean, being on our own has been absolutely great. Has not There haven't been more headaches or hassles or everything. You know, people said it's going to be such a pain dealing with this and that. just hasn't been. But I will say the first month or two, you know, finding office space, getting insurance lined up. I mean, doing all the little things that you have to do to start a company and open up a new office. That's, you know, it took a ton of time. And at the exact same time, uh, my schedule, as far as listing appointments we're booking, just jumped through the roof. And so by the end of the summer, I was just totally burnt out. Um, bringing on a listing partner was something I always knew I wanted to do from day one. Um, you know, I, I knew that I, I didn't always want to... Um, well, let me put it this way. I wanted to build a business, not a job. So um, I knew that if if I created a business that required my absolute day-to-day involvement, and if I was on vacation or in the hospital or something, you know, things would come crashing down. That's not a business worth owning. So uh, having a listing partner from day one was, was always a goal. Summer 2009, that's when it, you know, finally made sense. I mean, there's we were booking enough appointments where it just made sense. So September of 2009, that's when she started going on appointments. And I'd say, you know, by December 2009, that's when I was completely done. All listings had been transferred over to her, and I was I was not going on any appointments anymore. So it's been a year and a half, really, since I've, I've been on a listing appointment. I think I went on two last summer when um, she had surgery. So. Did you see a drop-off in the percentage of listings that were signed? No, I mean, she's, she's basically done just as good as me. 
And what do you attribute that to? Did you have a system in place that she could just step into? Yeah. Um, you know, I want to make it so that every listing appointment we go on, we don't have to do any selling. You know, so I want my marketing materials to do such a good job of selling our company and us that there doesn't have to be a real big presentation, a real big sales job going on at the appointment. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like we, we're kind of there. I mean, we'll always get better. And right now, I feel like, you know, we could be a lot better in our scripts and object, objection handling and, you know, some of the, the materials we use in our listing appointment presentation. I mean, everything can be optimized and made better. But um, when Laura goes out there, she's not going out there just by herself. I mean, she's going with the backing of, you know, a team and some great systems and some great marketing supporting her. So it hasn't been difficult to make that transition. Have sellers asked, why isn't John out here to list my property? Has that come up? You know, that that was, uh, man, I, you know, okay, so hiring my first assistant, giving up some administrative tasks, that was, for me, an easy thing to do. Bring on a buyer's agent, that was a little bit more difficult. You know, now, you know, somebody's calling me, they want to go see a house, and I'm, Having somebody else working with working with them instead of me that was a little bit difficult. But with um, sellers, for some reason, I feel like this is true for you know basically every realtor I've talked to around the country. We have this this ego that sellers really really care about us. <laughs> that that because they're calling me, that you know that it's because they want me. And the truth is, they're calling me because they have the impression that they will get their house sold quicker and for more money and with less hassles with me than with anyone else. So they're not calling me to be friends with me or because they, they like me and want to get to know me. They're calling me for a result. So, um, but it took me, you know, I mean, we scripted out every possible objection, every way somebody could ask, well, what's John's role in the process? What does John do? Blah, 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 and came up with all these different answers. And, you know, everybody on the team was well scripted before we made this transition. And you know what happened? We never get asked. <laughs> I mean, people could care less. I mean, they really could care less. So, I mean, now it does have to be worded correctly, and we have to set expectations properly with the seller to let them know what it's going to be like. But, um, you know, if you tell a seller this is how it's going to be, then they can't be upset at you or, or disappointed. So if we tell them that my listing partner is going to go on the initial appointment and my listing partner shows up at the, the appointment instead of me, they, they can't be disappointed because that's what they're expecting, if that makes sense. And if there was really a problem, like if they just, nope, we're not going to hire a team, we want an independent agent, we want somebody who does it all, well, number one, we would know that up front, we wouldn't book the appointment, or they wouldn't book the appointment with us. And number two, you know, if somebody's like that, they're, they're generally not going to be a good fit for us anyway. It sounds like this listing partner has really freed up a lot of time for you. I'm assuming that a lot of agents would be worried about the expense. How do you compensate your listing partner? Yeah, so um, as far as compensation, you know, my um, office listings and closings manager, she's on salary, and then my buyer's agents and listing partners are on straight commission, so they get a commission split of, of every deal that they do. Listing split for a buyer's agent is higher because it takes a lot more time and work to get a buyer closed than it does to get a seller closed with our system. There's no salary, there's no hourly for the buyer agent or the listing partner. 
they just get a percentage of the transaction when it closes. That's correct. Do you charge any upfront fees to either the sellers or the buyers? We do not. In fact, you know, we've always said in our ads, no upfront fees. And, uh, you know, it didn't used to be a big deal because a lot of sellers would say upfront fees. Why would you charge an upfront fee? Well, now agents in my market are charging upfront fees. So it's become a, a, a really good thing for us because we've never charged upfront fees and we don't. And we say that in the ads. You know, I mean, when, when people go to buy a car, what do they hate? I mean, they hate all the little tax, you know, the, the taxes and the tag fees and all the little add-on fees. That's, you know, something that, that's just, that's hassle. It's part of, you know, the hassle of buying a car. So, you know, part of the no-stress listing, part of taking the hassle away is just very simple pricing, just a percentage. If it sells this way, it's that percentage. If it sells another way, it's that percentage. Oh, and if you find your own buyer, you don't know us anything, but there's no additional fees tacked on there. Do you still advertise to sellers with those benefits that you just made, such as if you find your own buyer, there's no fee? Uh, in our current ad, I don't know if it's in there or not, because quite honestly, you know, we only have 60 seconds. And so, you know, if I had two minutes, I, that'd probably be enough time to, to throw it in there. But with only 60 seconds, I mean, every word that I'm, I'm using, every phrase and sentence, I want to make sure it's the maximum impact. And in a buyer's market like we're in now, uh, you know, sellers aren't really thinking, oh, I might find my own buyer. <laughs> you know, in a seller's market, when things are hot, I mean, they, they, they might think that they could. Back on listings, who takes pictures of the house and does measurements and things like that? So we have a, um, um, a photographer slash runner. He takes um, all the pictures for all of our houses, and he's awesome. I mean, he's a really good photographer. Beautiful pictures, wide angle, everything looks great. Uh, and he also um, takes care of our lockboxes and signs. So he's the person that does everything. Uh, physical outside of the office as far as getting a listing on the market. And then when the listing sells, he goes back and picks up the sign-in box as well? Correct. Does he get paid a flat fee for doing that work, or how does he get paid? Uh, we have an hourly rate, so I pay him you know, per hour, and that covers, you know, he, I mean, he, he pays for his own car and gas and everything, um, equipment, everything. I just pay for every hour that he's working for me. I, we, I pay him a, cert, a certain amount. Once you take this listing in, and now you're turning around to sell this property, you're trying to find a buyer for it, what do you do? What's your system for getting a property sold once it's become your listing? So, you know, when we put a home on the market, um, I don't want it going on the market until everything is ready. So, you know, our, our first two, three, four weeks on the market, first week on the market, first couple of days on the market, you know, that's absolutely our most important time. And, and every day that goes by becomes less and less important. Bottom line is I don't want any potential buyers, any of them, to find out that the house is available for sale until they all can find out about it at the exact same time. And they're all going to get the absolute best impression that they will ever get. So what I mean by that is I don't want to put it on, you know, the ML, I don't want to put a yard sign out today, MLS, maybe three days, a few other websites, you know, five or six days. So if there are 10 potential people that could buy this house, I want all 10 of them to be fighting for it. You know, if I put a yard sign out, maybe only one's going to find out about it and, and he's going to come in and make an offer where there could be nine other people out there that are interested in it that don't even know about it yet. Um, and as far as best impression, you know, we don't want anybody to know it's for sale until they can go online, 
and see all the pictures, uh, good pictures, good ad copy, and until the house is looking really good inside. So you know, if they're going to be making improvements to the house over the next couple of weeks, we're not going to put it on the market until those improvements have been done because we want to get the absolute most amount of money that we can for that seller. Um, and then as far as what do we do you know, to get it sold after we're on the market, you know, our assumption is when we go on the market at the price that we've picked that it's going to sell. But, you know, I mean, pricing these days, best case scenario, it's educated guesswork. Oftentimes it's just a crapshoot. I mean, you have no idea what the market's going to do or how they're going to respond to your house. So, you know, we'll go on the market at a certain price. Um, and we go on the market with the seller understanding that if if this is not working, like if we go 30, 40 days on the market and we're not getting, you know, but a couple of showings or people walking through, you know, enough people walking through, but they're they're not liking it, we're not getting offers. If it becomes obvious that we're not going to sell in today's market, then we do something about it. You know, we either change the price or we add value to the house some way. Almost always that's changing the price. And if we get to a point where they can't change the price anymore, then we just go off the market. Because the longer they sit on the market at a price that, that it can't sell at, especially in the declining market, you know, the less that they're going to be able to sell for in the future. And we just don't want to participate in that. So, but every week, you know, we're checking in, you know, is the house on track towards selling or not? And if it's not, we got to do something about it. We got to figure out what needs to change to make it sell. How often are you asking for price reductions? Do you have some type of standard procedure for that? No, you know, I think that makes sense with uh, short sales, you know, to have it on a schedule. And we used to do short sales. We don't really anymore. Uh, but with, you know, a traditional type seller, I think you're doing your seller an injustice if you're doing it on a schedule because it's just so subjective. So we could go one week and not have any showings. We could go another week and have, you know, one or two showings. But that one person, you know, is going to buy the house. And they've told us, that, that but they've just got to wait on something, um, you know, and then going ahead with a price reduction just because it hasn't sold yet doesn't really make any sense. Um, it, it just all depends. You know, sometimes you have um, a house that has a lot of showings but no offers, which means that the value they, that the buyer – so, you know, I think that the NAR average is, is 10 to 12. So for every 10 to 12, you know, showings, you should have an offer. Well, it's just an average. So sometimes it's going to be one. You know, you get lucky on the first strike. Sometimes it's going to be 15 or 20. Um, but, you know, over – you know, over the long haul, it's going to be 10 or 12. So if we have a house that's had like 30 or 40 showings in a month with no offers, well, that's telling us that the value that buyers are perceiving uh, online and from the curb is a lot different than when they walk through. Because, that, that, you know, something is causing all these people to go through, but when they walk through the house, they're not seeing that value. And then you've got other houses that are opposite, you know. Some people, they just... Some houses, I mean, for, for one reason or another, just can't get showings, but every showing that happens is like, wow, they want to buy it. So every house is different, and, you know, just every situation is different. So we don't really have a set formula as far as, um, you know, how many days we'll wait before making price change and then how much of a price change to make. I mean, in general, if we're not getting any showings at all, we get two weeks, we know it's overpriced, absolutely, unless we've had something weird happen in the market. Like, you know, a month ago we had, excuse me, two months ago we had tornadoes. We didn't have power in Huntsville for five days. So we basically threw out that whole week. You know, we're looking at, okay, how long have we been on the market? We're not even counting that week towards it. Week of Christmas, same thing. 
On your listings, your listing partner negotiates the purchase offer and brings that to a contract and then hands it over to your listings and closing manager. Who negotiates the inspections on the property? The closings manager does. Do you do any type of pre-listing inspection to try to head off any issues that might show up later? You know, we really don't. Um, I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I think it's a good idea. Um, if we have a house where I feel like we need to because I know there's going to be issues there and we've gotten the impression from the seller that they're probably not going to be willing to make repairs, then we'll suggest we go ahead and do it so we at least know what we're looking at. But, you know, when, when somebody puts a contract on a house at a certain price, they're doing that with the assumption that there's nothing wrong with it. So if an inspection, you know, results in, you know, a list of repairs, $1,000, 2000 $5,000 that need to be made uh, just to get the house in normal operating condition, you know, the market value to that buyer is still that original price, but minus all those repairs that need to be made. So in other words, what I'm saying is if we get the inspection done ahead of time, it's not going to change the perception of value prior to contract. I don't really want to, you know, have my seller spend that money if it's not going to really give them a, a good return on investment. Is it your policy to put home warranties on your listings at the time that you list them? Uh, no, we, we really don't. We do, If it's an older home that we know there's going to be concerns about it, we'll go ahead and do it. Truth is, you know, 75% of the, the contracts that come in, they're asking for a home warranty anyway. So m most of our listings end up selling with home warranties, but we typically do not put it on uh, at the beginning. Do most of your inspection negotiations end with the work being done or some type of cash settlement or concession? I'd say most end with the work being done. Let's switch over to buyers. First of all, with your buyers, do you practice a buyer agency? Yeah, we do. Um, you know, will we go show them a house before they've signed? Yeah. Uh, will we go show 10 houses to somebody who is not going to sign? Absolutely not. Uh, you know, but, I mean, really the buyer agency, it's a piece of paper um, that's representing their loyalty to you, but it's just a piece of paper and it doesn't really mean anything. So, I mean, we ask for a buyer to be loyal to us, you know, and if they say yes, I mean, typically we're getting the buyer agency signed, but it's not a part of our process where we absolutely have to get it signed to spend any time with, with somebody, especially that first showing. You know, some agents will, will, will not go show property until they've done an initial counseling session back at the office. Well, I mean, if somebody's calling on one of our listings and they're not currently working with an agent, I want to do whatever we can just to get in front of that person to get a shot at meeting them, building rapport, and then having them come back to the office to actually do the initial counseling session and hopefully get the buyer agency signed. So you do have an initial buyer consultation back at your office, and that's part of your process. It's just that sometimes you'll go meet them at the property first before you do that initial step. Correct. Do you track the number of buyer agencies that you have at any one time? Uh, every Every uh, Well, so every Thursday at 10 a.m., we have our team meeting. Uh, we're just kind of chit-chat a little bit, but go over closings and listings mainly. Uh, and then I meet with my two buyer's agents at 1030. Uh, and what we're doing in that meeting is we're going over every single A lead that they have and every single B lead that they have. So anybody that's buying a house in 90 days, within the next 90 days that they're working with, I'm getting a status update on them every single week. So, you know, I want to know every week I'm asking what's the lead source so I can be reminded of that. Um, 
what's the current status, and then what's the next step. So a lot of times, you know, agents will get so busy doing other things that they forget what the next step is and that they need to be following up with this person that said they're buying a house, you know, the next 45 days. We need to be on top of that person every day. So that's basically how I keep myself apprised of what's going on with with any potential um, sales that could be happening with the buyers in the next 90 days. So do you know how many buyer agencies you have signed at this moment? Um, no, that's not a number I track. Um, one agent, she's probably got eight A's that she's working with. Uh, and the other one has probably nine or 10, but I think four of those have to sell houses first. So somebody that has to sell a house first or has to get a job or has some sort of contingency in there, we'll still keep them, we'll still categorize them as an A because as soon as that event happens, as soon as they get that job or as soon as the house sells, you know, they're going to buy immediately. So we want to be staying on top of them, but I consider them an A with an asterisk. So one agent's got like seven or eight and the other has about six right now uh, that can that can buy today without having to sell a house first. So you track how many hot buyer leads that your agents are working with, these, as you call them, A leads that are going to be closing or doing something in the next uh, 30 days. Correct. What is your number one source of buyer leads or business? Definitely internet. I mean, we get a ton of leads, you know, off the internet and we're closing deals every single month from the internet. I'm, I'm always amazed because we've, you know, I've been paying for certain sources since 2005 even. Like I've had one source since 2005 and some years we've gotten like no business from it and some we get a bunch from and the only difference is, is how we've been following up with those leads. So, you know, we've had, like right now we've got two buyer's agents and we've got a lot more leads than two buyer's agents could handle. We need to bring on another agent, but at least we've, we're, you know, we're somewhat close. And we've had periods where we've only had one agent or been without an agent at all. And so we've got all these leads coming in, can't even do anything with them. How do you purchase those leads? Are are you paying per lead? Are you paying for a group of leads? Um, well, okay, so househunt.com, that's one of them. We pay uh, a set amount per month. And, you know, any leads that, and basically we have that, the Huntsville and Madison territory for househunt.com. Any leads that um, come in, come to us and nobody else. Uh, we use Number One Expert, which is a flat monthly fee, and it's basically a, a listing syndication system, which, you know, the, the website that it pulls people back to is, is incredibly ugly. I don't like the site, but uh, we get a ton of leads from it and close a lot of deals from it. Um, homegain.com, we pay per lead. So every lead that comes in, I'm paying a certain amount for that. Uh, we just started using um, agentmachine.com, which is one where you pay a referral fee upon closing. But House Hunt uh, and Number One Expert, those you know I've had for years and years, and they've brought us a ton of business. And Homegain, we just started maybe four or five months ago. And, and Agent Machine, we started a month ago. When you start working with a buyer, you said that you do set a buyer appointment to meet with those folks and, and sit down with them. Do you do some type of preliminary over-the-phone questioning before you set that appointment? Yeah, we've got an intake sheet um, for buyers, just like the one for sellers. We're basically asking them you know, all the qualifying questions. Are you currently working with a realtor? You know, have you spoken to a lender yet? Are you going to be paying cash? I mean, just all the questions uh, that are important to, to, to talk about with a buyer before you spend time with them. Do you have a house to sell? When are you going to be buying? All those questions. 
and then specifics about, of course, you know, what, what kind of house they're looking for. When you set those appointments, are you trying to set them in your office or at the buyer's uh, home? Where do you like to set those? Uh, in the office. Yeah, we, we really never meet with buyers in their home. It's always at a you know, home that they're looking at or back here in the office. How much time do you try to set for that appointment? Do you tell them it's going to be 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour? Uh, for the initial counseling session back in the office, just half hour. I mean, the short, when, when you're trying to get that appointment booked up front, the shorter the better, the easier chance you're going to have getting it. And your objective is to do a presentation and get a signed buyer agency at that appointment? That's correct. And, and it's not, I mean, the, the presentation's really, it's not formal at all. Uh, like our listing presentation, I wouldn't call it formal, but we at least have a very set structure. The initial counseling session, I mean, it could go all over the place, but basically the objectives there are to educate them on the market, you know, what's going on in the market today, what can they expect as a buyer, and then educating them on our process. But the educating them on the market, you know, we want to make sure that they are going to be a good buyer, like that they know what it's going to take to do really well in this market, how to be a great buyer in this market. And then educating them about us and what we do, we want to make sure that they're a good buyer for us. So we want to educate them how we work and make sure, you know, they're okay with everything and they're on board with everything. And then we spend time, you know, looking at properties on the computer with them in that during that consultation. Do you ever tie it in with going out and looking at properties that same afternoon? Yeah, I would say usually uh, the initial counseling session is immediately followed by showing appointments. Do you have a pre-buyer packet, some type of buyer education packet, just like you do with your listings? We do. Uh, Home Buyer's Guide. It's on our website also. Um, needs to be updated. It's, it's, it's There's a ton of information. There's probably like 80 pages there, just a lot of stuff that you know, first-time home buyer might find really useful. Lots of checklists and you know, frequently asked questions and that type of thing. Blank contracts. Have you found that buyers are looking at that before they call you or sometime during the process? Do you think that they're utilizing that source? Yes, they're utilizing it. When a seller's calling us, it's because they, they're interested in hiring us. You know, I mean, when, a, when we get a seller lead, it's not like the seller's just, you know, flippantly picking up the phone and dialing a bunch of different realtors and, you know, looking for, I mean, w when we get a call from a seller, it's because they want to hire a realtor or they're considering hiring a realtor. Buyers are a lot different. You know, buyers today do not pick up the phone and call up Remax or Coldwell Banker or Keller Williams and say, I would like a real estate agent, please. Can you sign me one? Or I'm looking to, to hire and interview, you know, a, a real estate agent to help me buy a house. When people are moving to town, sometimes they do that. Older folks still sometimes do that. But typically the first step in the process for a buyer is going out and looking at houses. You know, I mean, could you imagine if you were looking for cars right now and the first thing you did was call up a dealership and say, I would like somebody to help me look for cars. You know, you just don't do that. You just start looking at cars. In fact, I mean, the NAR statistics are that during the first two weeks of the search process, they haven't spoken to a realtor. So week three, they, you know, they start talking to different realtors, asking different questions. But so no, in answer to your question, I mean, it's helpful to them, but the process for a, for converting a seller lead and converting a buyer lead is just so drastically different because the seller, again, the reason they're calling us is because they're interested in hiring us. The reason a buyer is calling us is to get information about one of our listings. So we have to convert that call coming in, asking for information about listings into you know, the next step in the sales process. How do we get in front of them? How do we get them to 
give us their loyalty and say, yeah, when we buy a house, we're going to do it with you guys. Do you ever receive objections to signing the buyer agency? Yeah, uh, you know, our both of our both our um, listing agreement with our sellers and our buyer agency agreement with our buyers is canceled anytime for any reason. So if a buyer is not willing to put on paper that they're going to be loyal to us on an agreement that says in bold cancel anytime, and we don't want to work with them anyway, and and we're super happy that we found it out now instead of you know after showing them twenty houses. So that's how you're discovering their loyalty. Correct. You know, Denny Grimes is the one who taught me the script. Um, basically, you're talking about dating. You know, we're not getting married yet. We're just going to start dating, find out if we're a good fit. You know, I need you to sign this agreement so we can start dating, but we can call the marriage off at any time. So, um, but but really, the, you know, talking about the issue of loyalty up front, you know, towards the beginning of your time with them is pretty important. Who negotiates the purchase offer? Uh, the buyer's agent does. I went through the roles of the listing partner earlier. The buyer's agent role is to prospect and lead generate and follow up with leads, and then to do initial counseling sessions, to show property, and then to negotiate contracts. And after it's a contract there, then it gets handed off to the closings manager. However, uh, the one thing that they still do related to the closing process is they will schedule and attend the home inspection because you know home inspections in our area they take you know two three hours sometimes and a buyer's agent can bring their computer and a call list and their cell phone and be productive during that home inspection you know just go off to the side or stay in their car and make phone calls whereas my closings manager there's not really anything that she could do productive out of that home inspection who t- attends the closing for the buyer uh, the closings manager how about this listing and closing manager what are her tasks and responsibilities so, um, you know, she is the only administrative person we have in the office. We have a couple of virtual assistants we use from time to time, some people that help us with our graphics and website and all that. Sometimes, that you know, they help us put listings on the market and do things like that. Basically, anything administrative, she's in charge of. So, um, you know, I mentioned earlier she's in charge of the seller leads. She's in charge of... Do, uh, managing our, our mail outs now. We use a, a third-party company to actually mail the letters, but you know she's in charge of managing that. Um, she's in charge of putting any new listings on the market and then anything that has to be done to those listings during the listing period. Uh, when a closing comes in, she's you know fully responsible for that contract and, and walking that contract all the way through to closing. So basically, uh, everything with the exception of um, the sales process of working with a seller and the sales process of working with a buyer, uh, that's her role, either doing directly or managing our subcontractors who are doing it for us. Who did you find first? What position? Yeah, so um, my listings and closings manager, she's been with me for four years now. found her through just a newspaper ad or Craigslist, one of those. Um, the My listing partner, she started with me as a buyer's agent, by the way, and I... Uh, she was referred to me. Um, another, the one of the buyer's agents was I already knew from a former company, and then I also knew the other one. But um, it was the first buyer's agent who convinced the second buyer's agent to quit what she was doing and come work with us. Um, so I guess that would be three of those would be uh, just my network, and or, or they referred to me and one of them through advertising. You, so you didn't interview a whole slew of people then. You pretty much lucked out, and the first person that came in or the first person you knew about was the one who got hired. 
well, I mean, when I hired Jessica, I also hired uh, another. I had two full-time administrative people four years ago for a year and a half, and I didn't need two full-time administrative people. I didn't realize at the time, but, you know, that was not a very fiscally uh, responsible thing of me to do. Um, I was not <clears throat> being very – not being a good steward of, of my money and, and watching expenses closely then like I am now or like I try to do now. Um, but we, you know, to, to find those two full-time administrative people, I think I'm probably interviewed 20 different people. And I had an administrative person before that. Um, and I've had one, two, three, four other buyer's agents that I've had to let go. And I found them through advertising. And well, one from referral, one from advertising. So anyway, you know, they say hire, hire, excuse me, hire slow and fire quick. We spend a, the people that are on board right now and on our team. I mean, I spent a lot of time in multiple interviews with to make sure they're a good fit and that they were going to work out. But if somebody's not a good fit, you know, as soon as we figured that out, we just we part ways right then. But yeah, the people I have right now, I've been very fortunate with. When I brought on three out of those four, I did not have to interview many people to get them. Do you try to hire already experienced people or inexperienced? So on the uh, well, first of all, for a listing partner, listing partner, I would only the only way I would get a listing partner would be promoting one of my buyer's agents. So I know that they, you know, listing partner is such an important position. I mean, they're basically representing me and the company in front of every seller. And the listings are the heart of our business. That's so important. I don't want to take the risk of bringing somebody in from the outside and putting them in that position. Uh, so they're going to be promoted, you know, from the buyer's agent position. Buyer's agents um, said that you know I've got two right now, and I've had to let go four, uh, one left, and three I had to let go. Um, the, the, well, let me put it this way. The, the ones that I knew the quickest that it wasn't going to work out were experienced agents, agents that have already been in the business. So the, the problems that I had with people that have already been in the business is that they've got bad habits. So, um, you know, my ideal person is somebody that's in license school right now, so I don't have to pay for them to get licensed. They've already figured out they want to be in real estate. They just don't know where they're going to land um, to bring them into the business and, and teach them how it's done instead of getting somebody that's you know been in the business two or three years and you know probably are not doing very well if, if they're willing to look at you know taking a buyer's agent position um, and they've probably got bad habits. There are, of course, exceptions to that, but... Um, in my experience, that's been true every time. Is your listing and closing manager licensed? She is. Was she licensed already, or did you uh, help her get a license? Uh, no, she was not licensed, and, and yeah, that was one of the first things I did was was put her through license school. That's real important, um, you know, because I mean, even if you've got an assistant that's just doing, you know, minor tasks, if if she's not licensed or he's not licensed, there's a lot that they can't do. <laughs> Uh, you know, if we need a house opened up and the property's shown, they can't do it. But, you know, what she's doing now, I mean, she's fully negotiating, you know, all these requests for repairs, so she's act, acting in a licensed agent capacity anyway. So she absolutely has to be licensed. John, you've got all these people running around on the team. What do you do? It's <laughs> a, que- <laughs> a good question. Um, well, you know, when I said I just got burnt out, and that's why I brought on the listing partner, once we finally made that transition, which is December 2009, I think was, no, yeah, 
so basically January of 2010, so a year and a half ago. Man, I just, uh, I kind of detoxed for a while. I just got my life back, got to know my family again, got to, you know, learn some hobbies. I mean, I'd been going 100 hours a week basically all summer. Um, so I just, you know, got my life back, figured out that there's there's more to life than just um, work. So now, though, as far as what do I do uh, in the business every day, you know, I'm the team leader, uh, so I'm setting the vision. Um, you know, we're, we're having our meetings every week, so I'm keeping, you know, everybody on track and on task towards meeting their goals. Any problems or anything that, you know, they need my assistance with, I'm helping out with that. But my, my main thing, I mean, the, the main value that I bring to our company is lead generation. So I'm the person that's fully responsible for making the phone ring. So really, I mean, my perfect week is spending all of my hours doing nothing but working on new lead generation projects. Does that always happen? No. Do I get distracted easily and, and often? Yes. But I mean, the, the thing that I can be doing to, to bring the most value to my other four team members, to their lives and to their families is to be sitting here in my office figuring out how can we grow, how can we get more business, how can we get better. And that's fun. I mean, that's that's what I love. I love marketing. I love lead generation. It's the whole reason I got interested in business in the first place. So right now I'm doing uh, exactly what I want to do. Like, I love what I do. It's, it's unfortunate when I hear other realtors around the country say that they hate what they're doing. I think a lot of that right now has to do with the market. You know, they're just dealing with very difficult situations with foreclosures and short sales. And But, but a lot of it's just coming from doing things that they don't want to do, like working with sellers they shouldn't be working with because they're just rude, or buyers that aren't going to buy a house, uh, just working with people they shouldn't be working with. But, you know, right now, as far as what I get to do all day, I just I love it. I mean, I absolutely love it. We've talked a little bit about technology. What type of technology do you employ in your business? Well, we're basically, with the exception of one fired listings lead generation program, uh, that is desktop-based because their agreements with the MLS will not allow them to be cloud-based. That's my understanding. Uh, with the exception of that one system we use, we're 100% cloud-based. So, um, you know, we had that tornado um, come through a couple months ago, and we literally didn't have power in Huntsville for five days. It didn't affect our ability to run the business at all because everything we have is stored in the cloud. We use Dropbox. We use Google Apps. Uh, we use Top Producer. Just... Um, you know, I, I, we basically set up our office so that, um, you know, we do not need to be in the office to run our business, which is a pretty, it's a pretty freeing feeling, not having to worry about data backups and, you know, data security or, or worrying about where somebody is or having to come into the office to get something. I mean, we can do it from, from anywhere in the world. That brings up another question Well, I want to go back to on your team. Where do these people work? Do you have office space for them to work? Do they work out of their homes? Yeah, we have an office here. We just we we were in a thousand square feet. We expanded it to I think it's eighteen hundred square feet. Uh, everybody has their own private office, and we've got uh, a couple extra rooms available for for other agents as we grow. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's pretty important. I mean, can an agent, a buyer's agent, or a listing partner, can they be successful working out of their house? Yeah, but I think the chances are a lot higher if they're coming into the office every day in 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 a you know a pattern of success of productivity and you know quite honestly it's just more fun working with a group of people than you know having everybody work out of their house. So do you require everybody to come in once a day to check in in the office? 
or do certain hours in the office? No, we uh, we don't. I mean, if an agent were not meeting quota, yeah, absolutely, I would. I mean, they would need to be in here for three hours a day prospecting. But if they're meeting quota, no, I don't. I don't put any restrictions on that. So you have quotas for your listing partner and buyer agents? Not for listing partner, but for buyer's agents, yes, two a month. Yeah, I mean, if they're not selling at least two houses a month, then then we've got to figure out when the world's going on. They should be, you know, selling four houses a month. That's expected, but but danger zone would be if it's, you know, less than two. What happens if they don't meet that expectation? Well, I mean, at some point, if if we're not just seeing a turnaround, then then we've got to part ways. Um, you know, obviously that. You know, our company is not, the way we have our team structure is not working out for them or, or they're just not going to, you know, be able to make it in real estate. But no, there's no there's no set thing. I mean, if they're not meeting quota, then, you know, they're going to be prospecting three hours a day here in the office. And if that doesn't do it, if that doesn't turn around, then, you know, we just let them go. Sounds like you have a lot of systems in place to make things run smoothly. How do you keep things organized? Yes, yeah, so... um we have an operations manual that's basically a collection of all the different flyers and brochures we have combined with all of our how-to documents. So, like, let me look at one right now. Okay, so we use Dropbox uh, to share files. So every one of my teammates has a uh, folder on their computer. It's called Shared Morley Group Files. And anytime any one of us um, makes a change or an addition or a deletion to anything inside that folder, it gets updated on everyone else's computer. So if there's a flyer or a form in here and I make a change to it, it's going to you know, get propagated to their computers also, so I don't have to worry about them you know, using an old version. But inside our operations manual folder here, the uh, shared files folder, you know, we've got email templates. We've got uh, how to enter showings into homefeedback.com, uh, buyer agency agreements, different things like that. We've got a lot of checklists that we host on Google Docs so, like, every time there's a new listing or a price change or a new contract for a buyer, a new contract for a seller, or a closing happens, we've got different checklists for these items, and checklist gets printed out. Um, so, you know, basically we use a checklist for anything where pretty much all the actions are going to be done in one day. So, like, let's say, you know, we're putting a new listing on the market. Well, there's maybe, you know, 40, 50 items on there. It's all really going to happen in one day. We put that all on one document, one checklist. Um, and then for, for plans that are, you know, more drawn out, like, you know, check the, you know, make sure termite letters ordered seven days before closing, send, uh, you know, introductory letter two days after listing, those kind of things. We use Top Producer to manage all of those actions. Additionally, we use a few spreadsheets in Google Docs to manage different things. Like we have uh, one spreadsheet called Closing Calendar, where we've got a row for every different closing that we have right now. And then a column for all these different uh, items that are a part of the closing, and basically used so that you can check it every day and see are you know are we on track towards closing or not, and does anything need to be done? So there's you know here's some of the different columns. You got termite letter, home warranty, lender approved, sold rider, request for repairs, date received. Basically, just all those type of actions that you need to manage in a closing that. A lot of them you're just kind of waiting on to happen, so it's hard to put on a checklist. And then we, uh, you know, manage all of our listings, our active listings. We have a spreadsheet for that tells us how long has it been on the market, how many showings have we had, how long uh, since the last price change, how many showings since the last price change, and notes for every listing. And we keep one for listing appointment status so that I can know the status of every single listing appointment we've been on. 
Um, those are some of the systems we use. Time management. How do you keep control of your time? I use my Google Calendar. And I keep saying Google Calendar. We use Google Apps for business. We use the free version, which is 7.5 gig per user. It's, it's more than enough for us. Uh, but it's what we use to manage our email, our calendar, um, and some contacts, and then our documents. Uh, for me personally, uh, I've got pretty bad ADD, and I have to be very specific in how I control my time. So basically, if there's something on my calendar, that means that I have to do it. Uh, so like every morning, you know, I've got an, an appointment on there from 8.30 to 11, lead generation project. So I cannot do anything else except work on lead generation project during that time. Um, and then for all my tasks and projects, I use um, a website called nosby.com. N as in Nathan, O-Z, B as in boy, E as in edward.com, nosby.com. Uh, it's a pretty robust and powerful website, and it's got an iPhone app and an iPad app, and it's how I manage all of my um, tasks and all of my projects. You mentioned that before you started bringing in your, your listing partner, you were working up to 100 hours a week. How many hours do you think you work now? I mean, I'm probably put in 40. Uh, I don't work any Saturdays and Sundays, really. I just work a normal, you know, 9 to 5 type schedule now. The cool thing is, though, I don't have to work. Uh, what I mean by that is, is, is almost all of my time, I'd say 99% of the time I spend, uh, as the owner of Morley Real Estate Group is working on the business as opposed to in the business. So I'm working on how do we grow, how do we get better, how do we get more leads, not uh, I need to talk to this seller and that buyer and this seller. So I can go on vacation like I did a couple of weeks ago to Scottsdale and really you know, not check in the entire time. And when I come back, everything is, is running better than it was when I left. Do you uh, use a business plan? You know, I've used different variations of business plans. Um, you know, when I first got started, I had it really detailed out as far as, you know, what exactly, you know, every system is going to look like. Now, not really. I just, we, at the beginning of the year, we set a big goal, and I look at that goal every day, you know, how many closings we want for the year, and try to figure out how can we get there. My budget, you know, really, I was looking at this the other day, in the last year, it hasn't changed but a couple hundred dollars. You know, in the last year, uh, we haven't really increased or decreased any expenses in a year. Um, lead generation, you know, I'm always working on new projects, but I, I don't know. I guess, you know, business plan, I mean, yeah, I've got, if you were to look at all the spreadsheets and all the documents I'd keep, or I keep on the business, you'd consider it a business plan, but I don't have like one formal document that I could hand to an investor and say, you know, here's my business plan. Are there certain numbers that you like to track? Are there metrics in your business that you, you try to keep an eye on? You know, obviously, closings is the big number. Um, but what I'm looking at, I mean, the main things I track are seller leads, listing appointments, listings, and then seller and buyer contracts, seller and buyer closings, and the volume from both buyers and sellers, and then the gross commission from buyers and sellers, and then, of course, cost of sales, expenses, and net income. And I track all those numbers in one spreadsheet. So every month, going back till I started in the business, I can see, I can tell you exactly, you know, what the number was for every single one of those categories. You know, last month we had best month we've ever had as far as contracts. We wrote 18 contracts. Had the best month we've ever had as far as listing appointments. 
uh, the best month we ever had as far as seller leads. Uh, but our listings, the number of listings we took compared to the number of appointments we went on was horrible. <laughs> uh, you know, but now this month we've already taken more listings than we took, actually a lot more listings than we took last month. We're only two-thirds of the way through the month, uh, and I can't explain why. So, you know, sometimes you just see these really weird and random things, and you just got to throw your hands up and say, I don't understand why this happened. Um, but, yeah, I mean, to the extent that I can, I, I try to track everything that's going on in our business. There's going to be some people out there listening who think, boy, you've got all these people running around. Uh, how's this guy making a profit? Are, are you making a profit? Yeah, so as far as profitability, uh, yes, we've, we've always been profitable from the beginning. Um, it's a, it, What's frustrating about this business is that, you know, we've got a pretty high overhead that doesn't really change. My cost of sales changes, you know, how much I'm paying my agents every month, but my 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 overhead as far as marketing and, and salary and office space, about the exact same every month. So you can throw in, you know, three or four extra sales there and your profits go through the roof, take those away, and you're just, you know, breaking even for the month. Um, yeah, every year we've been profitable. Um, so the lowest we've gotten has been about 30%. Right now we're running about 40%. Um, which, no, that's not true. Right now we're about 35%, which I'm fairly happy with. Um, you know, I've, I've tried my best to follow the budget model in The Millionaire Real Estate Agent, uh, you know, the book by Gary Keller and Dave Jenks. And for a team of my size and all the way up to, you know, a million in GCI, uh, 40% is the number that they would expect uh, you get. And in, in a down market like we've been in the last few years, I'm, I'm pretty happy to, to eke by with 30 35%. Let's talk about motivation, goals, your mental game. What drives you? I think a few things. I mean, just just being excellent. Um, I feel like I've been blessed tremendously with with the gifts that I've been given. And so, what what motivates me day to day, especially where we are right now, Mike? I mean, we've got a pretty successful business. I mean, it doesn't require my time. And so, where do I get my motivation from right now? It's it's like. I'm just trying to be a good steward of what I've been given. Um, what excites me, you know, when I do really get excited about a project is just it's just the thoughts of growth and just being excellent and just having, uh, you know, just a really remarkable business and something that's, um, that's lasting. What do you think is the number one reason for your success? I honestly think it's just that I've been able to model what other people are doing and it's it's still even weird for me to say that because for so long I was such a perfectionist and wanted to do everything myself and for you know me to be able to put my name on everything but but the minute I realized that that's just a really dumb and risky way to run a business that's when you know the light kind of kind of came on I realized how much potential there was in real estate I mean we're in such a, a cool business that this is there's a million of us doing this thing in you know every city around the country and like let's let's talk about Birmingham, Alabama, for example. Birmingham, Alabama is an hour and a half south of me. There's an agent there, Collier Swecker, a good friend, and him and I share ideas all the time. And why wouldn't we? Because you know something that's working for him, if I start doing it, it's not going to affect his business at all, right? Because I'm not competing against him, and vice versa. So he shares with me, I share with him, and we both grow up. So we've got you know a million people and you know thousands of, of really good agents around the country that are already killing it and doing so well with this business, why in the world wouldn't you just figure out what they're doing and, and not just copy it, just do exactly what they're doing? 
And again, it's got to be something that you agree with and you can stand behind, but don't go start your own direct mail campaign until you figure it out what's already working for somebody else somewhere else, you know, in another city. So I'd say, you know, the minute for me where I just got over my ego, got past my perfectionism and just started to really take on the concept of modeling, that's when we started taking off. Well, John, your business has indeed taken off. Your investment in modeling the best business practices of top agents is paying big dividends. By working on your business rather than in your business, you've regained control of your life while maintaining your profit. You are a good steward of your business. Thank you again for being our Rising Agent of the Month. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent Interview of the Month Club, where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.